Welcome back to Outside In Music's Over Here. My name is Nick Finzer, and today we are chatting with alto saxophonist and multi-instrumentalist Brian Kroc. He has recently released a brand new album here on Outside In Music called Little, and it features members of his big heart machine band, but uh, in a different setting, small group setting. But without further ado, I'm going to let you hear right from Brian himself. He had a great conversation with... Alan Blanchard, one of Outside In Music's uh, other podcasters, and uh, we're excited to share this interview with you, so I hope you enjoy. Head over to Spotify, find Brian's music, and I hope you can take a listen and enjoy the conversation and enjoy his music. Cool. So here with Brian Kroc, uh, who actually just had a new release come out after he put out Big Heart Machine in last year, 2018. Uh, Recently in April, you just put out Little which is this new quartet that I guess you've put together. Um, you know, I was, I originally heard you at least through big heart machine, uh, which is, I think where you kind of got a lot more listens and, and people with your arranging for uh, like a standard big band, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then you put out this group little, which is your new band, which I think it's like drums, bass, guitar, and sax. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, I know I feel like guitar is starting to become more popular again. Mm. In in small group settings, like without piano, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's my own ignorance from what I've checked out. But yeah. um, well, I mean, I yeah. certainly wouldn't call it ignorance. But um, the actually the instrumentation of Little is um, sort of secondary to the personnel. Um, so I just wanted to play with Ollie Hirvonen. Um, he could have been a kazoo player, and I think we would be playing together. <laughs> Um, so it just so happens that he's a guitar player. Um, and Little's kind of a, um, a flexible instrumentation. So we recently toured for three weeks as a quartet, guitar, um, Ollie on guitar, Marty Kenny on bass, and Stephen Kramer on drum set. Okay. Um, we also often have guests and, you know, obviously because of the reality of um, – the uh, music scene there's uh, subs oftentimes so it's anywhere from four to six people is there um so let me ask this is there like a constant uh thematic uh, idea with the band that you think like kind of holds it together like do you guys have like a certain uh a sound in play or like a certain goal in in that sense that keeps it together no matter who's playing with it or like what made you want to start this specific band other than like the specific musicians Sure. Well, um, actually, even though the the little recording is newer than the Big Heart Machine recording, uh, the music actually goes back further um, in history just because um, I've been playing with these specific people for years and years. Basically, um, they were some of the first people I ever played with in New York. And um, I wrote a lot of the music on this new record even before I had written the Big Heart Machine music. Wow. And, um, yeah, so it's it's a little interesting. Um, I mean, the the to answer your question, the sort of stylistic foundation that keeps the band um, working is um, more of like a sort of like a um, garage band mentality. Like we like to rehearse together, and so we have been known to rehearse a lot. Um, at a certain point last year, we were rehearsing almost weekly. Um, and so 
we uh, we sort of all have in common this um, admiration for bands like um, things that come to mind are like uh, John Hollenbeck's Claudia Quintet or Steve Coleman's M Bass Projects or um, you know Ornette Coleman Quartet. Um, right, right. We like like the idea of a band with a somewhat solid personnel that's working on very personal um, ideas. And so um, what my role in Little has sort of become is more of like an instigator. Um, I sort of compose like um, challenges that I have a feeling that the people in the band will enjoy um, trying to figure out. So um, if there's anything that keeps the the style of the band consistent. It's just that most of the music is something like a puzzle um, for us all to work on together. And um, so, yeah, so we rehearse a lot. We talk a lot about the music and, um, and we also have similar um, aesthetic backgrounds, I would say. So, you know, that that's interesting though, that you talk about that, like you guys enjoy rehearsing. Yeah. Uh, yeah Cause well, I, fe- I feel like, in, like that's definitely in the minority, you know, like a group that like, really gets up and like rehearses all the time and doesn't just like rehearse with, with only a specific uh, a gig or a specific event coming up, you know, right. how do you, how do you do, handle that? And how do you handle like not um, making sure that you're never getting into where you're just like going through the motions for the sake of the rehearsal? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling that um, most people uh, really like getting together with their friends and playing music it's just that we're all so busy with a dozen different hustles that um, it's easy to sort of develop this attitude of like, um, we'll really quickly, um, you know, guerrilla style rehearse 12 charts in two hours, and then we'll do one gig and it's over, you know? Um, and that's just sort of become a reality of, of the thing because unfortunately a lot of the gigs that we jazz musicians do don't really pay enough money um, to justify the, um, the expenditure of time, you know? Right. So uh, what, what is really cool about the sort of scene that um, I've found myself in is that my friends and I, we just sort of do it anyways. We're all very, I guess you could say we're all very idealistic. We, we just set aside the time to, uh, you know, get a six pack, go to the <laughs> practice room and just spend as much time as we want, just sort of hanging out and playing, um, because it's good for the music, you know? Um, right. so it, it's, it might not be like, um, uh, you know, fiscally, uh, responsible or whatever, but we do it anyways. And, um, uh, you know, the tour we just did is, is a, is sort of a, another example of the attitude where we, we played 16 shows in a row, um, which was a ton of work and, uh, and kind of insane when I hear myself saying it out loud, but it was because we, we made this live record on um, Friday night and the new music is so challenging that we just needed that much time uh, to really get enough chances to, to work through it and figure out how to make it work. So um, so yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a luxury. I'm sure a lot of bands would prefer that luxury. It's the same thing with, as I'm sure, you know, just like, um, time in the recording studio, like 
most bands only you know spend half a day or a day in a studio these days but we always talk about how great would it be if we had a whole week where we could just camp out in the studio and really get creative um but time is uh such a commodity so uh, that type of thing doesn't tend to happen right Right. Now, I, I got a question for you. Like, so you did your master's at Manhattan in jazz composition. Sure. Yeah. Um, what made you, I mean, I'm sure like obvious, the, the obvious answer is like, I love composing. Uh, <laughs> but I feel like jazz musicians more so than like a classical performance major where we're commonly like we get like writing is always a part of it you know whether you're studying playing or whatnot you're always trying to write your own music because like the composition nature of the music in general right um so what made you specifically want to take that time and focus composition like in in such a specific way as like a whole degree program uh that's uh an interesting question i i think you're right that jazz musicians uh tend to be more um holistic in their approach to um, ex- exploring uh, the various facets of music. And I think a reason for that is because you can't really um, develop a personal approach to your own instrument and a personal language in terms of the actual information that you, um, that you use in your improvising, unless you've already thought about a um, context for those things. So a lot of people, mm approach composing as I'm going to, I'm going to, um, write some music that will allow me to, um, to express my self on my instrument, you know? And, um, and that's not often, I mean, there, there are today, especially a lot of composer performers, um, and collectives in the classical music scene as well. But, um, but it's definitely not as prevalent, I think. Um, and so I just remember when I um, was in my undergrad at the University of Illinois, that whole concept hit me really hard because um, I was listening to a lot of um, really, uh, you know, especially alto saxophone player composers who were really, really brilliant, like um, Tim Byrne, Anthony Braxton, um, David Binney, right. people like that. And I just thought that composing was something that you had to do. It was a necessary step to figuring out how you want to sound on your instrument. And so I started taking composition lessons at that point in, in, uh, in college. And my teacher um, was a classical composer who uh, really blew my mind. His name was Reynold Tharp. And he introduced me to like uh, one of my big loves uh ligety um and he introduced me to um you know pascal Dusapan and uh people like that um ludoslavsky um and so i started exploring classical music a lot more seriously under his tutelage and then i i vividly remember um maybe being a junior or a senior in in college and feeling uh, uh not not like I don't want to be over dramatic, but I was feeling very oppressed by the knowledge that I was extremely limited in my like ability to compose. And uh, okay. it, it was troubling to me. So I thought I really needed to up my game if I would, was going to, you know, uh, feel good about my 
music. Um, so it just so happened that Jim McNeely uh, spent time in his youth at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And so he's kind of a big figure there. And um, so I was introduced to his music uh, quite a lot. And, um, and I just sort of got fixated on the idea that I needed to study with him, even though I had never met him. And, uh, and so, yeah, I went to um, MSM for my master's specifically to study with Jim. Um, and there were a lot of, um, I would say, more practical reasons for pursuing composition as a, um, as a you know, secondary degree or whatever. Um, I, I think that if, if you're interested in composing sort of larger scale works and if you're interested in orchestration, um, being a part of a program that allows you to like write for big bands regularly or writing for orchestras regularly um, is uh, a huge advantage um, because those types of situations don't tend to crop up that often in the real world. And so it's like, how do you get experience writing for an orchestra um, if you if there are no orchestras? Right, no orchestra there. to play it. So what was cool about MSM was like they had um, four orchestra reading sessions um, in the span of two years, and they had um, a number of big band reading sessions every semester. So like there were just plenty of opportunities to like try new things and uh, right. and see how stuff would sound. So um, so yeah, I'm glad I did that. And also, you know, I was lucky in that my peers at MSM like didn't. Um, think less of me because I was a composer. And so I was like allowed to participate in like, you know, playing situations. And I saw, Oh, sure. 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 Like, Oh, he can't play. So he writes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, people didn't really like write me off. Um, so I, I still got to like um, work on my playing and, and playing the combos and stuff. So overall it was a good decision for me. Right now, do you, um, you know, I was reading, you have this, uh, like a blog on your website, you know, yeah. and, and you have this, this post about the Elliot Carter, uh, concert you had gone to, mm-hmm. you know, which one I'm talking about? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's one of the, um, and so you talk about like when you were writing, um, one of the tunes that was on this most recent record, uh, Saturnine, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Saturnine. Uh, Saturnine. Actually, it doesn't really matter to me how you pronounce it. <laughs> so. um, but, well, you, you talk about that, like with writing that you set limitations for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that that's commonly something that like is used in, in like teaching composition, you know, like when you go through class, like you try and write something maybe in the style of monk right. or whatever. Right. And like, you know, it certainly is a, uh, a period of even classical composition that they went through where they, they were trying to work with only certain uh, scales or, or orders of intervals or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you like so much about that kind of writing? Because I know that there's a lot of people that like immediately hear it and then they're like turned off to it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing um, about, you know, different personalities where, you know, some, there's certain types of musicians and some musicians really just want to hear music that makes them feel good. And, um, and that's familiar to them. And, uh, and, and I can understand that, Um, you know, the, the whole um, 
idea of the genre of pop music um, is uh, I love pop music um, because it when you're listening to it, you don't feel any sort of internal strife. It's really enjoyable. Um, but there's also other types of musicians who, uh, of which I'm one, who um, are, intru- are intrigued by music that they don't understand um, enough to want to look into it. And so it's a weird thing that's hard to explain. But when I hear music that, um, that, I, that doesn't necessarily sound good to me at first, that um, counterintuitively makes me want to listen to it more Um, because it's like somebody posing a question to you or some kind of a riddle. And, um, and I just feel this um, strong urge to try to solve it, I guess. Um, Right. So now do you go ahead? No, no, please. Um, So like, do you always, um, cause like, obviously that piece was gone through, like you wrote that with the intention of following these limitations. Right. Um, do you commonly use limitations in, in your other compositions or like, it, you know, without like going into a whole teaching lessons and whatnot, how yeah. do you, what, what's your method? Cause I'm like, for me, man, it's, it's practically like throwing darts at a dartboard. I hear you. You, yeah. you know? Well, I mean, I, I've got to be honest. I don't have it all figured out. Um, I'm, right. I've been sitting here pretty much all day today trying to write um, a piece for this outside in music recording session on Tuesday. And um, I have been truly staring at a blank piece of paper for hours. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that setting a limitation for yourself it is one um, sort of just uh, practical way of um, removing uh, option paralysis, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that feeling where you're you're at the, like a bar and there's a sign with 46 different beers on it and you're like, what do I get? They're way too Yeah. <laughs> and then you just end up ordering like the one you've already tasted. Or yeah, you take the Stella because everyone knows <laughs> it's going to be Stella. <laughs> exactly. Um, so... Um, so yeah, setting limitations does that, but also like it's such a an odd thing to think about. But um, the less options you have, sort of the more um, avenues that might open up for you in other sort of um, unexpected ways. Um, so if you limit yourself in terms of your pitch material, maybe you'll start thinking about um, form or um texture in a in a way that um is more creative um so um or if for example if you limit your um orchestration like say you decide to write a piece for solo violin then you really have to start thinking about uh your pitch content in a more um creative way so um so it's i guess it's certain limiting your options serves multiple functions. Now, do you, how, um, how close is the relationship for you between your writing and your playing? Like, is it something that goes hand in hand while you're writing a new piece? You're seeing how it feels also to play it or, or how does it work? Cause like, have, I don't know if you've ever written that piece where like you write it and you're like, Oh, this is killing. And then you go to look at it to play and you're like, okay, but it's not meant for me to play. Like right. that's how that's going to be. Right. 
Yeah. Wow. I'm loving these questions, man. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that um, it comes from a variety of angles for me. Like I, I usually have my saxophone, at least a saxophone out um, when I'm writing so that I can try things out as they're coming to me and, um, and things that, that, um, you know, it's, it, this kind of goes back to what I was saying just five minutes ago. Like if right. things feel really comfortable on the horn, um, I often get bored of them really easily. So if I write an idea that is hard for me to play, that usually excites me. And then it, it, it points me in directions of like things I need to practice. Like a good example of that would be flip from my new record. Yeah. Um, that's like a, that really started as an intervallic um, etude that I was writing for myself. Um, and it's, uh, it's opened up a lot of possibilities for me in my improvising. Um, so, so I guess the relationship between the instrument and the, the writing is um, a little bit like, um, backwards maybe like I, okay. I often write things that are just out of reach for my playing and then that forces me to um to practice a lot and then i feel my playing grow in a direction that I, that i feel good about um and yeah so but sometimes i also like will pick up an instrument that i don't play very well like the guitar or the mandolin or whatever and um and use those to compose because um the lack of facility forces me to to find um, ideas in a different way, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I would recommend most people to, like, um, change their um, process um, when they're in their practice room on a pretty regular basis, just in the attitude of experimenting, you know, um, and see how different things work for you. Right. I mean, it, I, I get you. I get what you mean. And that's, that's interesting that, cause I know a lot of people, you know, well, just as like, they might shy away from practicing like up tempos, you know, that yeah. if they write something, they're like, well, this doesn't sit well on my instrument. Yeah. And they're going to be like, you know, let me change the key or let me change this around in a manner that would be, uh, more, more fitting, you know, more natural or something. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm no, uh, no judgment towards that attitude because, um, I'm sure that could yield interesting results too. Um, it's just, I guess it just doesn't be, it's not my tendency. Um, sure. I, I tend to like, um, want, uh, what I'm doing musically to, to be a little different than anything I've done before. And, um, right. And I'm not saying that's a better or worse. I'm not making a value judgment about that. It's just, Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just sort of observing my own tendency there, you know? Now, um, you know, Nick and I have talked about this a lot because, uh, like our opinions and, and you kind of mentioned it earlier on like how you believe that, uh, at least I hope I'm not misunderstanding that, that really working on your composition helps you develop your ideas in your improvisation and yeah. your playing. And so, you know, like somebody that's very clear to me at, at that is like listening to Bob Brookmeyer. Um, okay. yeah, because sure. it, his, his playing is always very, uh, thought out or very, um, like, like there's a very clear path and you can see that with a lot of musicians. So how, um, how did you find it other than just looking back and saying like, wow, I'm playing more now where it seems like more, um, thought out or, or more connected throughout my playing versus then, 
Uh, but how would you maybe uh, give, you know, like a lot of people that listen are maybe up and coming musicians and whatnot. What advice would you give them on like how to actually like practically put that into to motion? Hmm. Like how to take these thought out ideas that you're doing and then tr try and invoke that same kind of thought out process in your playing maybe. Well, um, that's, um, that's a really tough question to answer because I have a feeling that the journey is going to be really unique to each individual. Right. Um, so I would say that if you're a young person um, and you're just starting out, um, listen to your intuition. What makes you feel excited? Um, get your friends together, play their music, um, share ideas, um, and fo like follow that feeling um as much as you can and for me that meant um oftentimes um like uh i would say shirking some of my responsibilities on my instrument like i um i definitely don't play the alto saxophone um in the most conventional way um and that might have been limiting to me um when i was younger um in terms of like um opportunities and i remember um going to see uh, a master class that steve coleman was um was giving and he said that um choosing the creative path of, of like i'm obviously just paraphrasing right here right. Um, choosing the creative path um is going to be the longer path because nobody except for you is going to be able to decide if what you're doing is right and what often happens in school is that um, you get judged um, by your teachers and your peers based on sort of um, uh, like criteria that are somewhat um, random and uh, and subjective, and uh, and so you might start to think that maybe you're not talented because you can't play. Um, Cherokee and all 12 keys at um, 400 beats per minute or whatever. Um, and I would, I want to just be the, the person who can let every young person know that that's not true because we don't need you to be able to do that. We, we, what we need artists to be able to do is to, um, is to do their own thing. Um, that's what I think. And, and I, I think that the definition of instrumental technique is being able to execute whatever ideas you want to. I don't think having good technique means that you can do anything. Um, I think having good technique means that you can do what it is that you want um, in music. So, um, so unfortunately that is a little bit um, of a longer path because you have to think really hard about what, um, what you want to do. And, um, and that can take years and years. It's actually, it's a lifetime process. So if you can come to peace with that, and say, I'm not in any rush. I don't need to be the best in the world. I don't need to be, um, you know, uh, playing the, the most ex exclusive gigs or whatever. Um, if you can sort of come to your instrument with some humility and just say, I want this, I want to figure this out one day at a time, um, just because um, I'm doing it for myself, um, in a way that that will, um, that will, lead you in the right direction i think yeah okay okay well look i got one more question for you sure um and this is this is kind of stirring the pot 
<laughs> sure, go ahead. Um, so I, I completely, uh, you know, this is just a, a general thing to see your thoughts on. When I think when you start, um, like obviously jazz is not the popular music now, and yeah. I don't think the majority of jazz artists or people that play jazz or whatever want it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're okay with that. Like, of course, they would like more people, you know, checking it out or whatnot. Right. Um, how do you feel that sometimes when you get more into this um, stuff that's farther and farther away from standards or farther away from like people that are trying to connect it with the popular music that's going on right now, mm-hmm. that it's harder to relate to your audience or to get them to buy into it? Like, how do you how do you deal with that? Because it's always more difficult, at least in my experience, to maybe show some originals to audiences versus playing, you, you know, that that one song that like they might always know, sure. or playing even a, a, like stuff like your uh, some of your writing that has like those limitations and is even maybe a little bit more um, uh, written written for the composer or something like you know you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I do know what you mean, and I, I know exactly what you're trying to ask. Um, and, um, uh, I, I guess I have to preface by saying, I don't know. Um, but yeah. I have a hunch about this. Um, I tend not to think too awful much about the audience when I'm writing music and it's not, um, it's not out of sort of disdain or disregard for the audience. I actually think it's because I have, um, I have uh, goodwill towards my audience and I, I believe that they are capable of um, engaging with challenging music. And, um, and as a listener, I hate feeling patronized. You know, I, I hate when I hear music and I think, wow, this artist obviously thinks that his, his fan base are like, um, have like no, uh, focus or uh or you know what i mean like i right, hate, right. I hate feeling like the the artist is talking down to me isn't like it? they're watering it down or something yeah and yeah so i guess all any of us can do is um is try to replicate the feelings that we've had i mean we've all become musicians because we've had such strong feelings in our past um while engaging with some art you know um and what I'm trying to do is replicate those feelings for my audience, you know, I'm, and, um, so all you can do is study the artists that you love and try to try to maybe learn something from what they did. And the artists that I love, um, tend to ask a lot of their audience. Um, you know, I love James Joyce. I love Elliot Carter. I love Miles Davis. I love Ornette Coleman. I love Charlie Parker. And if I, if I look at what connects all of those artists, it's the fact that they um, they challenge their audience. They don't. Um, they, I, I again, I don't have a problem with with um, the the philosophy of creating enjoyable music um, to to alleviate people's um, existential dread about the world and shit like that. But <laughs> I also think that's just one um, sort of lower tier of what art can do. And I think art at its best can can really transform a person, and um, and I mean that in the most sincere way. Like, um, the, I'm sure you can um, relate to this feeling. Like the best 
experiences that I've had while engaging with art have have truly like shaken me to my core and um, allowed me to to learn something about the world and and to to experience some depth, you know. Yeah. And so um, so I'm actively trying to do that myself, but I don't I can't really tell you if I'm being successful with it or not. I I do I have been surprised at how much audience members um, enjoy the music and um, and I do worry sometimes like is this going to be a drag for people but um, but for example like on Little's tour we played like some like straight up rock venues on double bills with um, with very very uh, straight ahead bands and people you know people didn't clear the rooms they really seemed to be digging the music so um i mean that's great to hear like yeah obviously i don't um you, you know i was no way trying to impose that on you it's just interesting to hear people's thoughts yeah on, i agree absolutely. and you know what man i'm also a big fan of pot stirring so yeah <laughs> so don't don't shy from that um okay well you know uh thanks so much for coming on brian um to leave people with uh with a little last thing that's a little fun i've i kind of think to do i'm i'm a big believer that people um a lot of people actually check out you because they like you as, as an individual, you know, <laughs> okay. and like, that's really what we're checking into or like with any artist in general, like there's a part of it that like they check it out because they're, they're invested in you. Sure. Um, so man, to ask you some random stuff that's not related to music. Oh man, this will be fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's the last show that you like, what's your favorite show right now that you've been checking out? That's not canceled. <laughs> oh boy. That's not canceled. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty obsessed with um, Lunatics. The, on Netflix. Yeah. Um, it's hilarious. Um, so I'll say that. Okay, Kellen, what's the last book that you read or the book that you're reading right now? Okay, I'm reading um, this book that's by Michael Pollan and it's called How to Change Your Mind. Do you okay, Kellen. What it's about or? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I'm definitely down to hear what that's about. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's it's about um, the history of psychotropic drugs in the United States and um, and uh, the current research that's happening about how um, they can help people with a variety of things, from PTSD to anxiety to depression. Um, so, yeah. I'm digging it. All right. Well, you blew my mind there. That's definitely not where I thought that was going. <laughs> um, man, that's interesting because that, um, okay. To give an own tangent when we had, so I just graduated from Florida state. Congratulations. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you. And, uh, when, when I was there, Ben Wendell came with his, um, band with like Aaron parks and, um, was Aaron and, talking about this? He, he had mentioned that. And then he mentioned another book, which I don't know if you've read. Um, it's, I think it's called uh, Daily Rituals. No, I've never read that. Okay, so it's this book. It's like a you know like a coffee table type book. It's called Daily Rituals: How Artists Work. I mm. mean, um, what it does is it covers like all these artists from not just musicians, but like painters, writers, choreographers, um, uh, uh, like people in film and and like sculptors and whatnot. And all it does is it goes through like all these famous people and has like a short paragraph of. Um, like what they did, like what their ritual was every day. Like what, what did they habitually do every day? Well, and the whole purpose is to try and like, um, make it seem relatable or like he's, he talked about how like changing your mind with like, in more of a sense of like work ethic, you know, not like right, hallucinating yeah. drugs. <laughs> um, yeah, actually the, the only reason I say that is because, um, Aaron 
um, I posted a picture of the book online and Aaron uh, had commented and said he read it and loved it. So man, that, that's killing. Um, yeah. all right. What's your go-to beer since you're talking about that? Like what, what kind of beers do you drink? My go-to beer? Well, yeah. I'm from the Midwest. So if I'm going with a cheap beer, it's going to be a PBR. Oh and gosh. Then, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you gotta have, a, you gotta have your cheap beer. Right. 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 Um, and then I really, you know, I mean, unfortunately I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man of my time and I'm, I'm really into Lagunitas IPAs. I, okay. I tend to go for those. And um, if I'm going with a fancier beer, um, maybe I would get uh, like a, I don't know, uh, uh, Pliny the Elder, I'll say. Okay, Killen. Yeah. Um, and then two more, man. What's your, uh, what is your favorite thing that you can cook? Assuming you can cook. <laughs> well, anyone can cook. It really right. is more of a question of, are you lazy? No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, I like to cook, but I'm on the road quite a lot. So I yeah. tend to eat out a lot. Um, so um, I'll say that I really like making, uh, uh, I pretty much just like cooking anything if I'm cooking with my girlfriend or with friends, you know, I like, I enjoy the, the process of, this is like the social aspect of it. Yeah. Um, um so. all right. And the last thing, man, what is, what is like one thing that's either, uh, like a hobby or, or, or a skill that you wish you had that you don't. <laughs> that's an easy one. I'm obsessed with golf right now and I'm really, really awful at it. With golf? Yeah. Um, I don't even ask me how I got into actually the entire <laughs> little band is obsessed with golf. We golf together. Um, and, uh, we're all pretty terrible at it. But, um, <laughs> so I actually am thinking about taking golf lessons, um, just so I can get better at that. Dude, no lie. That's it. Okay. That's interesting. You say that. Cause like, you know, my grandfather golfs or whatnot. Uh-huh. Uh, and my uncle golfs like a lot. Uh, yeah. and being a musician, I don't have the budget to golf a of lot. Not, yeah. Um, but when I was in college, man, doing my undergrad, they had, uh, they had a golf class and you could take it or whatever. And like, I, I just need to fill a freaking credit. So I took it and all it was, was you went to the range twice, a, uh, twice a week or whatever, man, it's killing. That sounds so fun. Like it's so relaxing and it, dude, it helped me work on my, uh, like I used to struggle with uh, serious focus issues while practicing. I'd get so distracted hmm. and it helps so much. Interesting. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, um, I don't want to, um, invoke a name that's very, uh, polarizing but one thing i've heard joe rogan say that i think is uh smart is that um it's it's always good to be actively engaged in some activity that you're bad at um i i definitely prescribe to that idea so yeah um, so golf is right now that's my humility thing like i i go out on the golf course and i just embarrass myself and i have to be <laughs> comfortable with it um so that's killing man yeah. <clears throat> that's kill well look man thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to us today guys if you haven't checked it out um go check out his record big heart machine uh came out last year in 2018 and his most re uh, recent record little came out april of this year um and, you know check out his, his website and his youtube channel and everything else coming out uh you know and if you see him around in the u.s make sure that you check out his band little cool uh and thank you again brian for joining us today thank you alan appreciate it man that was a fun conversation
there you have it. That's the interview with Brian Kroc here on Over Here. Thanks to Alan. Thanks to Brian for putting together such a great conversation. And I am excited for you all to go check out Brian's new album, Little. If you haven't found that, go over to Spotify. You can find it. Also on Bandcamp, Brian has a great presence. And uh, we are so glad that you could be here to listen to the podcast. Subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, check out Side of Music out on Spotify, on YouTube or if you like to listen to music. So thanks for being here. We'll be back next week with another episode.